Story Podcast. Ah, uh, man. Yeah, I recorded that myself. That is me on the recorder. Me on the drums. No, totally lying. Uh, thank you, YouTube, for making... <laughs> who, who would ever do this, right? I mean, I love history. But who would make 90 minutes of Revolutionary War-themed music? I don't know. <laughs> but somebody out there really had not a lot to do in their life with their time. Uh, I hope all of you are doing well, anybody, whoever's listening to this right now. Um, look, look, look at that. They're just, they're just going on and on. Wow, that, that guy with the recorder, though, you knew. You think that, like, when they were in sixth grade or fifth grade or whenever it is that you're taking music class and you learn how to play the recorder, the teacher was like, wow, that kid's got a future. <laughs> all right, anyway, let's get to it. So... Uh, I hope you're all doing well. This is the um, podcast that's going to go along with the two um, PowerPoint presentations, which I just want to explain um, sometimes when – so I, I've used PowerPoint. I, I just like PowerPoint a little bit better than Google Slides. Uh, it has more options and things like that. So when I'm using them in class, I use the PowerPoint. Uh, I understand, though, obviously everything is going over through Google, so sometimes things might not work out so well. You might have like a picture over words, but it won't be too much. Um, if you run into that, what I want you to do is please, when you open it up, like we're going to start with the French and Indian War one. Um, once you open it, go to view and then hit present. Okay, I'm doing it right now. And that's how you go through it. And you should really have minimal issues when it comes to pictures of words. There might be some overlap just because fonts don't always transfer. But just so you know. Okay. We're two minutes in and you maybe have turned this off already. But if you're still listening, here we go. Let's talk about this. So on Monday, went over the question of uh, why is it that people rebel against authority figures? Uh, reason why I asked this question is because we are talking about rebellion but on a large scale, okay? That's what a revolution is. Uh, hopefully last year in 10th grade, you learned about that, the Russian Revolution, Industrial Revolution, uh, the French Revolution. These are all major changes, right? Revolution brings about major change. But the way that you get to that major change is through rebellion. So why is it that people rebel, right? Think about it for yourself. Um, you know, it, sociologically speaking, when you study people's behavior, between the age of 14 and 20 is when humans go through the largest amount of rebelling uh, in their life, okay? And the reason for that is usually because you're starting to realize like, hey, I can pretty much do things for the most part on my own. I may need some help here and there, uh, but you know, you're not a kid anymore, not, not a child. Don't have to be so completely dependent upon your parents or whoever. Uh, it is that you would consider your guardian, right? Your caretaker. However, your parents will view you as somebody that they need to protect and take care of. So you have these two opposing things. And what it results in is a lot of fighting and arguing and things like that. Um, you know, I remember when I was 19, I was 19 years old in my uh, second year of college at Stony Brook. And uh, my parents had a curfew for me of midnight. And I really resented that. And so I would come home at 12.15, 12.30, 2.30, 
<laughs> and uh, one time I, I come home and my, my father is just sitting in the dark, which, you know, I mean, that's just a sign of insanity as in and of itself. But uh, it just resulted in, in just fighting and fighting and fighting. Um, and that is on a small scale individually what happens here, what, we're, what I'm going to be discussing with you for the next 25 minutes or so, okay? And that is basically why, how did the United States come about, right? We used to be colonies. Colonies exist for the benefit of the mother country. And then all of a sudden we decided, hey, we want to do things our, on our own. So let's get right to it with the French and Indian War. Let's talk about uh, what the war was, why it happened, and why it's important. So French and Indian War, okay? A little vocabulary for you. All right, immigration, pretty easy, basic terminology. I think you all know what that means, right? To move into a country. An immigrant is somebody who was once living somewhere else. Now they're here. Okay, the Albany Plan of Union. This is the first time, the first time that somebody had this idea, hey, maybe we can get the colonies to all work together. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, he's riding on a horse from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, all the way up to Albany. Uh, it took him a few days to make that ride, and he has this idea. He says, hey, you know, right? you know what? Right now, all of the colonies are basically doing their own thing, right? New York, in New York, we had our own money, right? We had different money than New Jersey. Uh, we had different money than Connecticut. Each colony really was like its own little sovereign nation. So he says, if all the colonies get together, instead of being one, if we're 13 united groups, Right. I'm sorry. Instead of being 13 separate groups, if we're just one united group, he says, we'll be so much more powerful. Uh, so that was his plan. The Albany plan of union. What the word union means is to come together for like one basic plan. OK. All right. So the background on the war. So last week we talked about uh, in class Jamestown. Um, and basically like the first colonies, Jamestown, uh, down in Chesapeake, Virginia, you have the New England colony up north in, you guessed it, New England. And they start off a little bit slow, but they eventually become extremely successful, okay? And when they are successful, when in New England you have people living to be 70 years of age, people want to move. They want to come here. They're like, that sounds great. Sign me up. Where do I go? How do I get there? Uh, and so that's that's basically what is going to happen in the 1700s, okay? So more and more and more people start moving here. And then they wanted more space. They're like, all right, well, uh, you know, I would like to have a 100-acre farm. So they start moving west over uh, mountains known as the Appalachian Mountains, okay? Many Native Americans live west of the Appalachians and also many French. And the French just happened to be the mortal enemy of the British back at this time, okay? So you can see there, there's a little map, okay, that magenta, right, nice, nice color. Uh, the magenta were the French, and then the, the yellow, that were where the British were, and then you can see the area that is disputed. Um, here's another map for you, okay, if you are opening this up, if you're on a computer or something like that, you hit the space bar, you'll see the colonies, who lives in the colonies, well, colonists do. And uh, what are the colonists going to start to do? They're going to start to move west, okay? Who is west? Native Americans, French, and so we're going to have the French and Indian War. See, so like, exactly, this is, this is my problem with Google Slides. When you transfer stuff, so like you're supposed to have, like, these guys are supposed to move around and stuff, and unfortunately on Google Slides it just doesn't happen. Uh, I, I apologize, I don't know. Uh, that's why PowerPoint is just better. 
Um, so British-American colonial tension. All right, so here's the deal, okay? The colonists didn't really have an army, all right? They had militia, and a militia is kind of like a really small army of people who are just volunteers. Um, it's not very well organized. You can come and go as you'd like, okay? That's what the colonists had. When the war begins, Britain sends out armies, literally. Uh, they get their armies together. They send them across the Atlantic Ocean. That's a three-month trip across the Atlantic Ocean. Then once they arrive, mostly in Boston, some in New York, uh, they're then going to have to travel over the Appalachian Mountains, which was another about six to eight weeks. So here you have these guys, these soldiers, who spent about five months traveling to get to where this war is taking place to put their lives on the line to protect these colonists. Now, think about it from their perspective, okay? Again, they just spent about half a year moving over, coming on over, just traveling. And then they're going to fight, put their lives on the line to protect these people. Wouldn't you want to be appreciated for that, right? Wouldn't you want like a little bit of thanks? So what the British ask for is for some taxes. So if you're on the slide, hopefully, where it says British American Colonial Tensions. And you just keep on hitting the space bar until we get to everything being filled in, which there are about five rows, okay? So the, the colonists, when they do fight, they use guerrilla warfare tactics. That's kind of like what you use when you're outnumbered. Um, back in the day, I used to play a lot of uh, Halo 2 and you know the early Call of Duty games called COD, right? COD for you gamers out there. Uh, COD 2, COD 4 was my favorite. And we used to play a lot of uh, Capture the Flag, my friends and me, back in the day. And, uh, you know, we played Capture the Flag with teams of eight, usually. And we did it where once you were dead, you couldn't come back. So, like, if I'm there, if it's just me and maybe one other person, right? So two people left. On the other side, you still have eight guys. I'm not going to run out into the open. I'm not going to just, hey, all right, I'm going to get that flag. No way. Uh, I'll be dead. Right? That's when you hide. That's what guerrilla warfare is. When you're outnumbered, outgunned, guerrilla warfare works. However, the British kind of look at guerrilla warfare as being uh, cowardly. They thought that if you're going to potentially take someone's life, you have to be able to like look them in the eye. You never you know, stab someone or shoot somebody in the back or anything like that. Okay? That's how the British looked at it. So right from the bat, right off the bat, the British and colonists don't agree. Their military organization was different. Discipline was different. The colonists were not very disciplined at all. And then finances. This is the big thing. This is the most important part of the French and Indian War. Okay, if you were sitting in a classroom right now, I'd have these notes up and I'd, on the smart board, I'd circle this, put a star next to it. Finances. Colonials, resistance to rising taxes. They did not want to pay taxes. Now, again, there were definitely two sides of looking at this. So let's imagine I make $1,000 a week, okay? Great, make 1000 bucks a week, sweet. And let's imagine I'm not paying any taxes. So for those of you who work on the books, you know, you see your taxes get taken out. And just wait until you get older and you make a little bit more money. Then you, you'll see a lot of taxes get taken out, uh, usually to about 30 to 35%. So let's imagine... I'm making $1,000 a week, and I'm actually taking home $1,000 a week. I make $1,000, and that's what's in my check every, every week. Then all of a sudden, the president says, hey, we have to start taxing you, and it's going to be 35%. So 
how am I going to feel when I've been making $1,000 and now all of a sudden I go and I look at my paycheck and it's $650? I'm going to be mad. I'm going to be really, really mad, right? That is what was happening to the colonists. They didn't have to pay taxes for such a long time. And now all of a sudden they're being taxed. So they were very, very angry about that and understandably so. Now from the British side, they say, hey, we're protecting you. All we're asking you to do, even if you're not going to fight, at the very least, please, 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 we need you to pay taxes, help pay for your defense. And they didn't want to do it. So both sides, you can kind of understand, they both make a good argument. Uh, and there was just really no middle. It was either going to be taxes or, or no taxes. Okay, let's go to the next slide. This next slide, we can actually move on from here. Uh, this bit about William Pitt is not really that important, okay? Um, so let's get to the war. The war, what happened? 1754, there's a French scouting party. They're just trying to check out the lay of the land. It's like, all right, look, here's a river. Here are some mountains. Oh, we can farm over here. This is great. They get ambushed by, Blitt uh, Blittish, by British colonials, okay? Uh, the British go, they attack them. What's going to happen? Well, you, you guessed it. The French are going to retaliate a few days later, and these are the things that lead up to war, okay? The French... They got along with the Native Americans. Now, being as this is historically referred to as the French and Indian War, referred to them as Indians, even though obviously, you know, we, they were named Indians because the early explorers thought they were in India or the Indies, and uh, they obviously were not. But uh, for the sake of this, because it is referred to as the French and Indian War, that's what we'll call them. Okay, so they're Indian allies, they outnumber, they're outnumbered, but they use a little bit of those guerrilla warfare tactics. George Washington, okay, so George Washington, we know as the first president of the United States. Um, he was also the general who basically leads many, many successful campaigns during the Revolutionary War against the British. Well, 20 years before he did that, he was fighting with the British. He was a colonist. He wanted to get involved in war. He, he, from his uh, journal, his diary, he says that he just like, he was like an adrenaline junkie, okay? And he loved the thrill of being involved in a fight, in a war. So he goes and he joins up and eventually he becomes a general during the French and Indian War. He must have been one of the luckiest people ever because while he's fighting, okay, you can see here, it says he had two horses that he was riding shot but he was okay. He takes off his jacket in his third battle that he gets in and he had four holes in his jacket that were not there before. It must've been like uh, the baggy part that you know was like kind of like hanging off him a little bit, but what a lucky man. So twice his horse is killed from under him and then he has four holes in his jacket, but he never actually gets wounded during the French and Indian War. So this man being an adrenaline junkie, this just makes him have even more of a desire Okay, to be involved in warfare. All right, keep that in mind though. So here's a man again, the, the important part, I don't want this to be missed. He here, in the French and Indian War, is fighting with the British. But 20 years later, things are gonna change and he will lead armies against the British, okay? Imagine like if I were to go and join the army today, I say, hey, um, you know, if we have a conflict in Iran or Afghanistan or wherever we might have conflict and I say, I want to join up, I want to join up. 
And I go and I fight for the United States and then something happens over the next few years and all of a sudden I leave a revolution against the United States. That takes a major change, right? To put your life on the line for your country and then to put your life on the line to overthrow the government of your country. That's what George Washington and a lot of people end up going through. In any case, getting back to this, in 1756, England declares war on France and this becomes a world war. It is fought in Europe, it is fought in the Caribbean, and it is fought here in North America. So, ending of this, okay, in the end, the British and the colonists win, okay? The English prime minister, though, he decides, hey, we have to raise taxes. The war was costly, and so now the colonists are going to have to start paying taxes, Okay, the English win, they push the French up into Canada, which is why today, if you were to hop in your car and drive eight hours north up to Montreal, uh, you would see people who are speaking uh, French, French Canadians. Okay, results of the war. All right, Treaty of Paris, yep, we have Britain, uh, Canada, blah, 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 blah. The colonists, yeah, here's the key, right? Bullet number two, again, if you were in class, I would star this, circle it. The colonists show no support throughout the war. And because of this, the British are not happy at all. Okay. All right. So this is the end now of our French and Indian war notes. Okay. Cool. Fantastic. 100%. Now, close this out. Okay. Open up the 2019 road, road to revolution. So the things that are going to lead up to the... American Revolution. Okay, and again, hit view and then present. Okay, so Rhodes Revolution, 1770 to 1776. So the French and Indian War is 1754. It's over by 1758. Okay, so we're fast forwarding now 12 years. What's happened over these 12 years? Taxes. Taxes is what has happened. And people in the colonies have become very resentful at having to pay these new taxes. Okay, so British economic policy for the American colonies. We got two words here, mercantilism, well, two terminologies, mercantilism and then salutary neglect. Okay, mercantilism. As you can see, you got the king here. He looks happy. He's got a stack of Benjamins in his hands. <laughs> so mercantilism is when the, is basically how colonies work. When the mother country, the king, makes money off the colonies. In Virginia, Jamestown, they were growing tobacco. And they were making a lot of money. But 50% of all that money had to always go to the king. Okay? The king is really happy. He's making money. He doesn't have anybody there, right? It's just a bunch of colonists, whatever. The money is coming in. That's what mercantilism is. However, the king is 3,000 miles away. So some of the colonists now, once they start getting taxed, they start smuggling. Okay? What is smuggling? Smuggling is when you are illegally importing things, selling things, all right? And so the king is going to start to realize, hey, I'm not making as much money as I used to off the colonies. Why? And it's because money is going missing. The second terminology we have here is salutary neglect. What is salutary neglect? That is, well, neglect, right, is when you don't do something. You neglect to do something, you're not doing it. Salutary neglect is when they were neglecting to tax, all right? So again, for a long time, the colonists were living under salutary neglect. They didn't have to pay taxes. And now that is coming to an end, all right? Salutary neglect, here it is. The mother country decides not to tax its colonies. That's what it is. 
Now, salutary neglect ended with the French and Indian War. Okay, so now all of a sudden they're going to have to start to pay the taxes. British mercantilism, next slide. As I just said, it's a policy used by the British to which the American colonies served as a source of raw materials and a market to sell their goods. Okay, again, this is their way of making money off the colonists. Okay, fantastic. So taxes placed on the colonies. All right. So what taxes are they going to start to add? Now remember, right, we're talking about between 1758 and 1770. So here they are, 1760s. We have the Sugar Act. So what is the Sugar Act? You know, you buy something sweet, you had to pay a tax on it. We actually had um, in New York City a few years back when we had Mayor Bloomberg, he decided that he was going to put a tax on sugar drinks. Um, <laughs> sugar drinks sounds so stupid. Basically, you know, if you went to 7-Eleven, you got a big gulp soda, you were getting taxed for it. You had to pay extra money for it. It's kind of like what we have now with plastic bags, right? Uh, Bloomberg, basically, he said, oh, well, we have an obesity issue. So my way of fighting that is I'm going to try and get people to not have these drinks that are high in sugar. My way of going about doing that, tax them, try and get people not to drink them. It's just like how we are with the plastic bags. They don't want people using plastic bags because it's not good for the environment. So now every time you use a plastic bag, you have to pay for it. And what's, what happens? More people have their reusable bags, just the way that it works. For them, they put this uh, tax on sugar. The following year, 1765, they put a tax on stamps. Now, this is interesting because you're all at an age where you should be getting your, uh, your license to drive, maybe your permit, right? Now, when you get your permit, it costs money, doesn't it? it sure does. What does it cost? About 100 bucks, something like that, right? That is your stamp act, right? Now, yeah, you know, people think about that. They say, oh, yeah, you have to pay for stamps, right? Stamps like 35 cents or 40 cents. I don't know. But it wasn't just stamps. It wasn't just about mail. Nah, not at all. Nay, nay. This is about any legal document, okay? If you want a license for something, if you're getting a gun permit, if you're getting a license to drive, whatever, you have to pay for it. And if you really think about it, Why? Why do you have to pay the state of New York for the right to drive your car, right? It kind of makes no sense. And so this originated way back in 1765. And uh, the British started levying or passing these taxes. And the people were like, well, this is stupid. Why do I have to pay you for a legal right to do anything? I should just be able to do it. Then you have one of the most hated of all of the things that the British are going to do, okay? Because they realize you can pass taxes but you have to make sure that the people are going to actually pay the taxes. And so they're going to pass something called the Quartering Act. Okay, the Quartering Act stated that the colonists must house British soldiers. This is the thing that really drives people, pushes people over the edge. Okay, imagine, you know, you're home, right? Uh, if you're listening to this, you might be home anyway. So imagine in your house right now. And all of a sudden, you get a knock at the door. Hello? And it's soldiers. And you're like, hi, uh, can I help you? They're like, yeah, we're going to be spending the night here for the next few nights. I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, no, you're not. And they're like, yeah, we are, due to the Quartering Act. You must house soldiers. It's like, well, we, you know, we only have, we have, uh, you know, six people who live in the house and we have just beds for them. They're like, all right, well, cool. Uh, you can sleep on the couch because the soldiers are going to sleep in the bed. How angry would you be? Colonial men were so severely angry at having to have 17, 18, 19-year-old men, male soldiers, 
in the house with their daughters. They were ticked off. Okay, so the quartering act is like, now it's not just about money. Now this is basically the way of the, the British saying, hey, colonies, remember who you are. Remember who's in charge here. So it was kind of demeaning almost in a way. So what happens? The colonists, they decide, we're not going to take this sitting down. And they start fighting back. We start having things like tarring and feathering. Now, you look at this picture here and it looks kind of you know silly. Here's a man looking like he's dressed like a bird, got a bunch of feathers on him. Uh, these guys are shoving tea down his throat. This is a lot more painful than this picture shows, okay? They would, if you've ever uh, seen in the summer when they try and like fill in the, the cracks in the street and stuff like that, they put that hot tar uh, in there and then it you know solidifies. This was almost what they were doing, okay? They would dump that hot tar on the tax collectors and then dump feathers on them. And it was kind of like, oh, you wanna, you wanna act like you're in charge? You wanna embarrass us with the quartering act? How about this? And that's, so that was one of the things they would do. It would brutally burn them. Um, really crazy, crazy stuff. The group of men who, would, who started this, it starts off in Boston, okay? And they're called the Sons of Liberty. Now, you might have heard of Sons of Liberty. You know, it's a good group and stuff like that. Interestingly enough, the Sons of Liberty were like a terrorist organization. Why? Because they were terrorizing people. Uh, they were terrorizing the tax collectors. In fact, they, in, um, in, in a, a suburb of Boston, actually set fire to one of the tax collectors' homes and stuff like that, you know, which is kind of like, oh, so things are escalating here. You know, he had a family and stuff. They didn't care. They, they burned the house down. Then on March 5th, 1770, we, we hit a new, a new low, okay? And that would be the Boston Massacre. Uh, the story of the Boston Massacre is basically you had some uh, colonial, so you had these guys in Boston uh, they were building ships. That was one of the biggest things because you have so many trees over there. You have Boston Harbor. The best way to make money was through building naval vessels, okay, or, or ships. So these guys, for, for the rope that would go for the rigging of the sails, they had a, a tool for, for intertwining the twine <laughs> to make rope. And the tool kind of looked almost like um, like a crowbar, right, like a, like a mini crowbar. So... It's at the end of the day, uh, you have a bunch of guys who are in a tavern, and a tavern, by the way, is a bar, okay? So they're in a tavern, and they're, they're there just, you know, talking, hanging out, drinking. And these kids over by the harbor, uh, they start throwing snowballs at some of the British soldiers who were there, right? British soldiers were there to enforce the taxes. So they start calling them lobster back. Hey, you lobster back, you lobster back, because of the, uh, the jackets that they would wear, the red jackets. So you start throwing snowballs at him, throwing snowballs at him. One of the soldiers goes, takes his rifle and basically swings it at a kid like a baseball bat. Bam, hits the kid. So what do the kids do? What do kids always do, right? 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds, they start stuff and then they go and get somebody to help them. So they go, they run to, the, to the, their parents, the, the dads who are in the bar. And they're like, oh man, you know, I don't, I don't know the name of the kid. Little Jimmy just got hit by one of the lobster backs. Now, these guys have been drinking, so they're like, what? 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 What's happened? What? And they immediately, they start going outside, and they start, you know, yelling at the soldiers. These soldiers are kids. That's the thing I want you to understand, right? Here are a bunch of men, 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s, with these crowbars basically in their hands, and they're like, yo, you hitting little kids? You hitting little kids? 
And the soldiers, are, you know, again, are young. For most of them, this is the first kind of combat that they had ever seen. And we don't know who fires the first shot, but we do know that in the end, five colonists end up dead. Soldiers end up beat up, but none of them die. And that is what is known as the Boston Massacre. Now, this picture, okay, I want you to think about this. Whose perspective do you think this is from? From the perspective of the British or the perspective of the colonists? Well, if you look at it, right, you've got, you know, colonists with this one guy towards the bottom. He's got like, you know, half his head is missing apparently and is bleeding all over the place. Uh, the soldiers are all standing in a row. It looks like they're smiling while they're shooting. And then all the way at the bottom, in the middle, you've got a little puppy. Oh, a little puppy. He's, uh, he might be in harm's way there. So this is definitely uh, from the perspective of the colonists, right? They want to kind of make, uh, make, have like a sympathetic view towards them, okay? All right, moving on. So that's the Boston Massacre. Then we have something called the Gatsby Incident, 1772, all right? Uh, what you have is the Gatsby is a British ship. They were in charge of basically stopping smuggling. We talked about that a few minutes ago. So there's a ship that was smuggling rum in uh, Rhode Island. Uh, <laughs> the ship gets, you know, the Gatsby starts chasing them down, chasing them down. And the Gatsby runs aground. What does that mean? It gets stuck. It goes to where the water is a little too shallow. It gets stuck uh, about 100 feet away from the coast. The people of Rhode Island, they go, they see this. near This is Providence, Rhode Island. They see this and they start getting in little boats and they head out to the ship and they burn the ship to the ground. The one guy who uh, goes and he, he murders the captain of the Gatsby, just goes, holds him up, up against the mast and shoots him, kills him. Okay, and they're like, this is basically their way of, of saying, hey, we don't want you here, right? Burn the ship to the waterline, just, just terrible. Uh, this is in 1772. So first you have the Boston Massacre. Now you have the Gatsby incident, okay? Boston was a crazy place. Boston's also a great place. Let's talk about Boston. Boston's got one of the best baseball teams ever. That's right. That's right, you Yankee fans. All right. The Boston Red Sox. Look at this. This is Orlando Cabrera right there celebrating uh, in, in 2004. Look at this. Number 34, Big Poppy, David Ortiz, uh, hitting a walk-off home run. That's right. Game uh, five. Game four. Sorry. Game four of the ALCS. Okay. Coming in. Look at, just look at all the happiness. Right. Don't you want to be happy? Be a Red Sox fan. Although maybe not this year. Okay, ah, oh, look at that Jason Baratek and A-Rod getting into it. It's okay. That's right, A-Rod. Who cares? Who cares about him? Anyway, Boston. Why is Boston so important? Boston is a city of firsts, okay? As far as the American Revolution goes, the revolution started with thoughts and ideas in Boston, right? We have the massacre. We're going to have the Tea Party, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Uh, the British, what their goal was, was to cut Boston off, to silence them. Cut them off from the rest of the colonies. They wanted to divide and conquer. So they're going to come down and they're going to take over Long Island. So where we live today was a loyalist stronghold. What does that mean? Loyalists were people who were on the British side. Okay. And so the loyalists, they're like, you know, they didn't want to see a new country. They wanted to stay British. So they come in and they take over Long Island, they take over the Hudson River, and they try to basically cut things in half, all right? 
George Washington, Washington, he's going to defeat the British and they're going to retreat from Boston, taking the loyalists with them. Okay. Uh, he goes to the Battle of Long Island, but unfortunately he's going to lose. But then this is what Washington does. This is what makes him a revolutionary war hero. Okay. He goes to Pennsylvania, but then you've seen the picture where he goes and it's all frosty and cold, right? Uh, Christmas night, 1776, he goes, he crosses the Delaware River. He attacks Trenton where you had a bunch of British soldiers who were drinking and partying because of the holiday. And he kills 1,400 of them while losing just five men, okay? So how did it get to this? Well, the final straw was something called the Tea Act, okay? So you have a lot of information here on the British East India Company, okay? And basically what the Tea Act was, was you had members of the government for Britain, right? Their government's called Parliament. They had stock, basically. They owned shares in uh, the British East India Company, which provided tea. They didn't want the colonists making money off their tea. They wanted to make money, of course. So they didn't allow the colonists to get their tea from anywhere else other than from them. The colonists wanted to make money. So you have two opposing ideas here, all right? What they, so what the colonists are going to do is they're gonna say, fine, you know what? Let's get these people where it hurts. And they take the tea, they throw it into Boston Harbor. This is in 1773, all right? So when they go and do this, this is like kind of like almost like the final straw, the last, the last, this is it, this is it. Um, an act of defiance where they say, hey, we don't want you here. We don't respect you. All right. We don't, we don't respect your authority by, th and they hit them where it hurt, right? They hit them in their pockets. Okay. They respond with the coercive or intolerable acts. All right. What it, the worst of those was that they closed down the port of Boston. They strengthened the quartering act. So more soldiers are going to come here. They're going to be living with people. How do we respond? Well, we create something called the Continental Congress, the first one. There were 55 delegates from 12 colonies, right? 12 of the, of the 13 colonies. The only one that didn't get involved was Rhode Island. They were a little bit nervous all due to that Gatsby incident. And their whole reason for existing is they needed to figure out what are we going to do? How are we going to respond to this? Okay. Now, why is this important? Do they actually do anything? No, <laughs> to, to be honest. This is important because it's the first time that we have a step towards some kind of colonial unity, okay? So remember, roll all the way back 30 minutes ago when I talked about Benjamin Franklin on his horse and he came up with the Albany Plan of Union. Now his idea, his plan is actually happening with the First Continental Congress. Then the British come, right? So they set up this group called the Minutemen. They're going to uh, be like a warning system. You know, one if by land, two if by sea, blah, 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 blah. Paul Revere, he's a guy, he's one of these Minutemen. He sees that the British are coming. He goes, he rides, he lets everybody know. They start hiding guns because they say, we're going to have to protect ourselves. We're going to have to create little militias. And so the first shots of the American Revolution are going to be in Lexington and Concord, April 18th, 1775. All right. And this is going to be known as a shot heard round the world. Why? Because in the end, the unimaginable happens. Colonies, colonies overthrow 
the British, the most powerful empire in the world at the time. The Second Continental Congress gets together. They draw up something called the Olive Branch Petition. Some people say they're like, you know what? We're not, we're not going to win this. And so the Olive Branch Petition was like one last chance at trying to secure peace with the King of England, King of Britain. He doesn't even care. He never even reads it. He takes it, throws it in the trash. And then we end up having the, the American Revolution. Okay. Now, the issue is this. A lot of people, like I said before, talk about loyalists. A lot of people, they wanted to uh, stay British. Thomas Paine, he writes this pamphlet called Common Sense, right? What's common sense? It's something that you have, right? You say, uh, I'm not going to put my hand in a fire. Why? Because if you do, it's, you're going to get burns. Duh, right? That's just common sense. He says, well, it's just common sense. People, again, thinking back to the first thing we talk about, people don't want to be told what to do. People want to do what they want to do. He says, just common sense. We shouldn't have a government always trampling our rights, telling us what to do. Thomas Jefferson then goes, and in 1776, he writes up the Declaration of Independence, okay? And that is the beginning, that's it, the beginning of the American Revolution. Okay, so your assignment.